at Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, and specifically at the Lord's Prayer, and verses 9 through 13. And what I'd like to do this morning for our scripture reading is uh, from the English Standard Version, uh, if you don't have that as your personal Bible, you can find it in the pew in front of you on page 811, 811. I'd like us all to stand and read together out loud the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in the middle of verse 9. So we won't say pray then like this. We'll start with the Our Father, and we'll read together Our Father all the way through to the end of verse 13. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You may be seated. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time. We do pray, Lord, that now, as our Heavenly Father, you would, by your grace and in our midst, hallow your name. Your kingdom come, Lord, and as we gather together in Christ's name, be in the power and might of your full kingdom here within our midst, we ask. And Lord, we do pray that this day you would give us our daily bread. We thank you, Lord, for the sustenance that you've given us thus far to even be here this morning. And Father, we pray for that spiritual sustenance of the bread of your word, that you would feed us now upon the truths of your word, that you would guide us and give light to our path upon your word. And Lord, help us, because of what we see and meditate here upon your word, help us to not only repent of our sin, Father, I pray that you would help each and every one of us here this morning to acutely feel our neediness for you. We are weak creatures, and you are sovereign creator. Lord, draw us to rely upon and desire and rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When Jesus' disciples asked him how they were to pray, Jesus gave them, and thus gave to us, the most perfect form of prayer ever to be uttered. Jesus outlines for us in six petitions and form of prayer that that here in the Lord's Prayer is at once God-centered as well as outwardly focused. It's a prayer that's God-centered and others-focused. It's God-centered in its radical attention to God's glory And to God's grace, we're to address God as our Father, signifying the amazing grace that He's given to us and Him sending His Son, and in His Son making us as adopted sons, thus being able to call Him our Father. And we're to hallow God's name, glorifying Him, seeking to honor God in everything that we do and in everything that we are. But the prayer is also wonderfully outward-focused. Right? We're, we're reminded by the, the pronoun our. When we pray our Father, that we live and pray, not as 
mere individuals, but in the context of others, of other brothers and sisters. And we're reminded through the petition for God's kingdom to come that there are countless others out there who do not yet know of God or of His Son, Jesus Christ. We're praying then for them to come and believe in Jesus and to be admitted into that kingdom. Your kingdom come, Lord. Bring them into it. The whole prayer, of course, seems to be composed according to this kind of this outline of God-centered focus followed by a focus on others and our relationships here and now. This matches the Ten Commandments, right? Where the first four commandments are concerned with our relationship with God. Worship God only. Don't have any other gods or idols. Don't take God's name in vain. Be sure to keep the Sabbath holy. And then the second set, the second six commandments, all deal with our lives and our relationships here. The horizontal plane. Don't steal. Don't lie. Obey your parents. So on and on. All of this was summarized by Jesus when he said that the two greatest commands are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then secondly, to love your neighbors as yourself. It seems to me that here in the Lord's Prayer, we see a form of praying which operates on that same principle. You see this in the pronouns used, right? In the first three petitions, we are addressing God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's controlled by that your, or in the old King James, thy, thy kingdom. But then, in the second set of the next three petitions, the pronouns change to the words us and our. See that? Give us This day, our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And you see, there's a wonderful outline here, set by our Lord on how we're to go about praying. First God, mesmerized with His glory, saturated in His being, before we ever move to the here and now. This helps us this morning, I think, as we begin to consider verse 11, the first petition in the second part of the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. The problem that so many Christians, at least in the early church, had with this petition is that it seemed so earthly, right? We've just been praying to our Father in heaven, meditating upon the glory and the holiness and the transcendence of our eternally hallowed God, asking for God's kingdom to reign and for His will to be exercised in and through all creation on earth as it is in heaven. This is cosmically minded kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, we're taught to ask for bread. It doesn't seem so heavenly minded. But I think if we consider the nature of what we've just been praying for, praying for God's kingdom to come and and for His kingdom rule to be exerted here upon earth as it is in heaven, this petition actually fits in quite beautifully. Jesus is reminding us here that being citizens of the kingdom of God includes within it men and women who are made up of flesh and blood. 
We're not just spiritual souls made to exist in a heavenly spiritual realm, wafting and waving in our physical-less, soulless, soul kind of whatever. No, we're, we're embodied spirits. We are bodies that have spirits and spirits that are enfleshed within bodies, and we're made spiritual and physical, and that as creatures we are in need of daily physical sustenance. We're being reminded here that with the kingdom of heaven, there is such a thing as being hungry. In the kingdom of heaven, you can be thirsty. And that God has created these desires for us to not only seek after him, but to rely upon him. Rely on him daily for the needs we we need for our bread. Therefore, I think this petition makes complete sense in light of everything that came before it. When I was talking earlier this week with a number of men about this passage, Daniel Gomez said about this passage, uh, responding to the question of why, why is this petition here? Why after all this high-minded stuff? I think he gave a great answer. He said, I think we're being reminded that we, we can't exist without God. God, you're the creator and I'm the creature, and my life is bound up in your care. I think that's spot on. And and it relates to the earlier petitions for God's kingdom to come in the sense that the true citizens of God's kingdom are those people who admit their need for God's help and guidance and his daily sustaining grace. Is this not how Jesus' whole Sermon on the Mount begins in this section of Matthew? Turn back just one page. Look at chapter 5. And look at Jesus, how he begins this whole sermon, of which the Lord's Prayer is a part of, right there in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. He, he opened his mouth and, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This whole sermon, this whole section of Matthew has the kingdom of heaven as like a a silver-threaded theme tying the whole thing together. And so when we come to how we ought to pray as as exiled citizens of this coming heavenly kingdom, it makes wonderful sense that we're to continually seek our daily care and sustenance from our heavenly king. Lord, O king, give us this day our daily bread. As we noted last week, though, Jesus is also clear that in one sense, the kingdom of heaven is with us now. There is an inaugurated sense to the kingdom of heaven now where God's rule and God's presence is seen among his people, his church. Here, where two or more are gathered, here is Jesus as king, and he's present with us. And his word being preached like it is right now is guiding us as his people. And so the thing about being in the kingdom of heaven is that it's meant, well, it's meant to be joyous, isn't it? Have you considered the ways in which Jesus talked about entering into the kingdom of heaven? There's a, well, there's a party aspect about it, right? What was the first miracle that he did in terms of inaugurating his kingdom? He went to a wedding party. He turned water into wine. And and so in the sense, this prayer for daily bread, we're being reminded that within the kingdom there's bread and there's wine and, and there's worshipful celebration. 
This prayer for daily bread finds, again, I think another intimate connection with our prayer for the kingdom to come. Give us another day, Lord, of celebratory bread. Bread which we can eat and enjoy as participant citizens in your joyous kingdom. It was this kind of understanding that consumed almost every early church sermon or commentary on this passage. I looked at a number this week. Almost all the church fathers understood this prayer to be a prayer about the Lord's Supper. Taking communion here and and, and enjoying the Lord's Supper now is a kind of inaugurated banquet, looking forward to the consummation and final coming of the kingdom of heaven where we'll one day celebrate the fullness of the banquet with Jesus Christ himself. I I don't think that interpretation is wrong. Whenever we, as citizens of heaven, eat a meal here, there ought to be an aspect, right, of our eating and our enjoyment, which is looking forward to that far greater banquet to come. Uh, Far be us, as citizens of that kingdom, to blindly enjoy the here and now without ever thinking about what's better to come. All the good things we eat, all the good things we drink, and all the good times of fellowship we have are only just a foretaste of the greater banquet to come. Jesus is connecting this petition then, I think, and the next two petitions to what it means to be in and a part of God's heavenly kingdom. But, all that kind of high theologically stuff being said, I think we're missing the point of this prayer if we confine it only to celebrating the Lord's Supper. As one of my brothers constantly says, what's the blue-collar theology here? I think it's this. We've noted this already. The kingdom of heaven is not just a spiritual reality. It's also made up of people who have real, physical, everyday needs. That's this petition, what it's dealing with firstly and foremostly. So I want us to look this morning at four aspects of this petition. The first thing I think we see in this petition is that we are coming to our Father for bread. We don't want to forget that this petition is still connected to the whole prayer that we've just kind of read out loud together, where it's Christians praying to God as their Father. In other words, only those who are found in Christ, only those people who have repented of their sin and believed in Jesus and have given themselves in submission to Jesus can now approach God in prayer as a child approaches their father. And that matters when it comes to this petition. The Westminster Larger Catechism, I keep returning to it because it's so insightful on this passage. The Catechism has this wonderful insight on this petition, when it says this, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we are acknowledging that in Adam and by our own sin, we have forfeited our right to all the outward blessings of this life and deserve to be wholly deprived of them by God and to have them cursed to us in the use of them not the most encouraging of ways to begin thinking about this petition, but certainly sobering and I think right. They quote from Genesis 2.17 where God warned Adam that the day he would eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. He would be cut off from God and cut off from life and from all the goodness of this life. And then the catechism quotes 
um, the actual judgment uh, of curse that God gives to Adam after he ate from the tree. God says to Adam, because you have done this evil thing and you have not obeyed me, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return again to the ground. Do you see? There is, because of Adam's sin and because of our sin, a fundamental discord between us as men and women, meant to have dominion over the earth, to cultivate it and produce good things out of it, a discord between us and what the earth actually produces for us, namely bread. The ground is cursed to us. By sweat and pain and through thorns and thistles, we are able to work and get some kind of meager sustenance. In other words, because of sin, bread is not easy to come by. And here's the scary thing. I don't think anyone here really believes that. No one living in the world we now live in, here in the paradise of the kingdom of the American dream, really believes that the curse that God has given to mankind is real. That's not good. The larger catechism actually goes on to quote and make use of Deuteronomy 8.17 when it says that by our own industry we cannot even procure bread. I I read that this week and I thought, "That, that doesn't seem right. Uh... Uh, We use industry and our ingenuity all the time to produce and make and enjoy bread. But then I actually read Deuteronomy 8.17. Did you spend this week in your quiet time meditating on Deuteronomy 8.17? This is what it says. Beware lest you say in your heart, it is by my power and the might of my hand that I have gotten this wealth and this food. But... You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. If there ever was a verse that should strike and put goosebumps on the back of our neck as self-sustaining, pull ourselves up by our own bootstrap Americans, it should be Deuteronomy 8.17. It's the point that the Westminster Catechism is getting at here. They're rightly reminding us that when we pray this prayer, our Father, give us this day our daily bread, we're praying to God in the name of Christ, to now our Father. And in Christ, He is the one who has overcome the curse. We're also praying as needy children, aren't we? We do not come to God in the self-exalting pride of Adam or of Satan or the latest American guru that makes whatever he can make and does whatever he wants to do. No, we come in humble reliance upon our Father just as Christ did. We're programmed today to think that neediness is like some kind of plague, right? We're trained to think that we're always supposed to have control that we always need to have it all together, and that neediness is some kind of flaw in us. We're so good at hiding it, but it's not. 
your neediness, your weakness, your helplessness. Friends, brothers, sisters, it's not a flaw at all. It is the place where we come to rely upon God and and rely upon one another, and that glorifies and hallows God's name. So what this petition does is that it teaches us to stop covering up our neediness with fig leaves. If you're in Christ, you're covered in his shed blood and need not cover your nakedness and your helplessness in the fig leaves of pride. You don't have it all together, and that's okay. When you walk into church, we need not hide our vulnerability behind the fig leaves of pride, looking like we've got it all put together. None of us can do that. It's not our weakness and our neediness and our vulnerability actually strength in Christ? What did God say to the Apostle Paul about his weakness? You remember? He told him, and I think he tells us as well, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Then Paul beautifully responds like this. Well, okay, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness. I'm content with insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Friends, would that be the motto of our life? The motto of our church? Father, give us this day our daily bread. And may that petition be your daily reminder that you, too, are weak and needy, and helpless. Amen. For those of you who are here and are struggling to admit to your own weaknesses, uh, you're uncomfortable that saying you're needy, struggling to admit that you need God to help you in life, that you're in need of a Savior to help you with eternal life. My friend, if that's you this morning, what are you really trying to prove? What are you trying to gain? 30 40, 50, 60 more years, and I promise you all of your power, all of your strength, all of your wealth, all of your career-minded security, all of your nest eggs and savings and equity will be nothing to you as you face the reality of eternity after death. Death is the great humiliator. It brings everybody, the most put-together and secure individual, to a place of true, terror-ridden helplessness. Because in the face of death, and after that which comes judgment before God, everything we've done here to hide and cover up our need vanishes. All our fig leaves are burned away and removed. In that day, I promise you, you will need the bread of heaven. Christ, Christ himself who offers himself to you now. And he says, take of me and eat. What he means by that is rely on me. Find your sustenance and life in me. Friends, some of us here may need to repent of trusting in ourselves. And right now, turn to Christ, going to him. And and maybe for the first time in your life, begin trusting in him as a needy person. Confess your actual weakness. Admit to him that you are, in fact, in the face of eternity, really very needy. I promise you, uh, the scriptures promise you, he will not turn you away. 
He will sustain you and he will keep you and he will feed you with his own power and strength and he will never let you go. He is a strong father. And the second thing we need to see from this petition is that Jesus teaches us to pray for just what we need. No more and no less. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we're asking God to give us those necessities, the bare necessities of life. Or to put it in other words, we're being taught to rely upon God day by day. And this is a point which, again, is sadly lost, I think, in the complicated structures of our contemporary Western society. In Jesus' day, honestly, in the vast majority of the world still today, laborers were and still are commonly paid day by day for the work that they do. The pay was usually so abysmally low that it was almost impossible to save any of it. Therefore, the day's pay would be just enough to just purchase that day's food. So you can imagine the the precarious nature of what it actually meant to survive in that kind of society. If on your way to work you fell and twisted your ankle, well, now you can't work, and maybe not for a week. And so maybe you can't eat for that week. If the crops failed that year, and again, you may not be able to eat. In such a society, to pray, give us this day our daily bread, that was no empty rhetoric. Living a relatively precarious existence, Jesus' followers were learning to trust their heavenly Father to meet the necessities of their very physical daily needs. They're also learning, and I think we too should be learning, to pray to God with contentment, right? This petition is a request for our daily bread. Bread symbolizing here the kind of basic needs, those basic things we need to survive. So that when we pray, we're not coming to our Father with, with like this Amazon Prime wish list of goodies, you know, and an and unstoppable bank card that we can just get whatever we want. Now we're learning to pray with contentment. Lord, give us what we need for today. Just the bread just the sustenance I need to make it through to tomorrow? I think Jesus may in fact have had Proverbs 30 in mind when he teaches us this petition. Have you read Proverbs 30 before? Turn, the, turn there now. Proverbs 30, verses 7 through, through 9. I think it's a fantastic prayer and one which should shape how we pray daily. Proverbs 30, verses 7, 8, and 9. There in Proverbs 30, we see uh, Agur, Agur, approach God in prayer. And there in chapter 30, verse 7, he says he has two things he requests of God. First in verse 8, remove far from me any falsehood and lying. It's a great prayer. But then he says this. He prays, God, give me neither poverty nor riches, Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Is that not a fantastic prayer? One which is so countercultural and goes against the grain of everything we know today in our modern mindset. But this fits right in with the Lord's Prayer where we're taught to ask God just for our daily bread. Lord, just enough. 
so that I neither am tempted to steal in poverty nor forget you in richness and wealth. I wonder if you're bold enough to pray that, to ask God to give you just what you need, just so that you can remain consistently reliant upon him, content in the goodness that he provides. This leads to a third lesson we see in this petition. Uh, That's of the larger principle, I think, that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down to us from our Father of heaven. That's, in fact, what James, the brother of Jesus, tells us in James chapter 1, that every good and perfect gift does come down from God. Listen, though, to Paul. I think Paul's a bit sharper in how he puts it. He says the same thing, but with a little bit more edge. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says this, For who sees anything different in you? Speaking to the Corinthians, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you did receive it, why do you boast then as if you did not receive it? Do you see? Paul's pushing us, asking us why we boast in the things that we have as if we were the ones who really earned it. As if we were the ones who were able all on our own to grow, produce, and make it. In other words, the scriptures teach that God himself is the ultimate source of every good, whether it be food, whether it be our clothing, whether it be our work, our leisure time, our strength, our intelligence, the gifts we have, the friends we have, the family we have, where we grew up, where we're headed, whatever it is, those things are given and provided by God. And to be clear, reminding of us of our first point, God does not owe us any of those things. They're all gifts of his divine grace. We can't merit our strength. We can't like do enough good works where God's like, okay, now you get your bread. There's nothing we do to get health, wealth, or material blessing. And God is not unjust to withhold any of those things from us. Remember, in Adam, we have all followed after Satan in rebellion against our God, in pride, kind of shaking our fist at him, defiant and upset that he's created us to be reliant upon him. We really think we don't need him. Remember, in my younger and more foolish days, you'd go out dancing with your friend, and uh, the DJ would get on the microphone and he kind of get the crowd involved. And he say, all my single ladies, all those ladies that are independent, where are you? <laughs> and you'd hear all the ladies scream, yeah! And then he'd kind of pit the guys, all my guys that don't need those independent ladies, where are they? <laughs> and they'd clap. But I remember even then thinking, wow, all these people independent, pridefully not needing anyone else. I'm thinking, what kind of society does this lead us towards? No one needs anybody. You just need yourself. And we're proud of that. How very Adam and Eve-like. The larger point here is that we do need God. We were created as creatures to be reliant upon and find our strength in the Creator. Life in Western society is not quite as precarious as it once was in Jesus' day. I'm thankful for that. 
I'm thankful that I can go to CVS and, and get Tylenol when I have a headache, that I can go and get bread whenever I need to. And we've received so much more, but, but we, we cannot forget that what we have, we've received. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't? Paul reminds us. But sadly, for so much of our society, our wealth has blinded us. It's made us a thankless people. In our opulence and in, in our comfort, we, we have the audacity to suggest that God isn't real. We've done this. Science has claimed this. Where's God? We, we, we've recreated a kind of Tower of Babel, and we've denied that there's even a heaven to go to. But it's the Christian, the believer in God, who can in both good times and in bad times, and there will be bad times, we can pray, our Father, give us this day our daily bread. We're being taught in this prayer that it's God we rely upon because it's God who provides what we need, which leads us to our last point. The fourth thing we're taught in this petition is that God answers our prayers. God is faithful, and he really does, according to his wisdom and in his good and and perfect timing, answer all of our requests, sometimes with a no, but he answers them. In one sense, everyone in here right now is a testament to the truth of this, right? Are you here this morning alive and able to use your breath and being to worship God? Is it not because God has given you what you need daily in order to be here, to be alive? Here's the wonderful thing about this prayer. It points to God's extraordinary faithfulness in giving us our daily bread, but so often in his very ordinary ways. God provides. He he, he sustains us, and he does so in wonderful ways. But have you ever considered that in the history of redemption, from Adam until Christ, there have only been two times where God has given his people bread through a miraculous manner? Once to his people in the wilderness, where God brought manna down from heaven, and then once more where Jesus created bread to feed 5,000 of his followers. So clearly God can give us daily bread miraculously and instantaneously. But for the most part, everything else outside of those two examples, we see him doing so ordinarily. Consider next time you bow in prayer to God in thankfulness for the the meal he's given you to eat at dinner or breakfast or a potluck meal that we share downstairs. When you thank God for the bread you're about to receive, Consider how it is that that bread got to your table. God, in his sovereign grace, raising up a young man or a young woman to take delight in tilling and farming a plot of land. God, causing the sun to shine and the rain to fall on that land. God, through the germination of a seed that that he's upholding with his sovereign right hand, bringing to bear a crop within that land. God raising up factory workers to build and produce tractors to be sent to farmers to reap the harvest. God used and directed truck drivers to transport the grain to a mill where workers sustained and protected by God worked hard grinding and collecting that grain to be sent to other factories and to other bakeries. Bakers laboring to make and bake breads to be sold in markets. 
Young men staying up late at night, stocking aisles with fresh bread in your local grocery to be purchased later in that next day. God gave you work to make an income, to buy the car, take the bus, to go to the store to buy the bread. And now as you sit with your hands folded and your eyes closed and you pray, Our Father in heaven, thank you this day for this daily bread. We pray that prayer in deep consideration of all the ways and all the manners in which God has directed and providentially guided people and places and pastures and pipelines to bring you your daily bread. When we pray, God, give us this day our daily bread, we're praying to our Father who is sovereign and faithful, and He will and He can and He delights in supplying our needs. And so often, as we're reminded here, He does through our interdependence upon others. Friends, is this not a wonderfully others-focused prayer? When you pray, give us our daily bread, You cannot do so looking down on the truck driver. You can't pray this prayer and and also at the same time look down on the grocery store clerk or on the blue-collar farmer. Each and every one of these individuals God has positioned just rightly to be a part of the way we find our sustaining needs. And likewise, they rely upon us. Here then is Jesus' marvelous petition for what being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looks like. We, daily dependent upon God. And in our dependence upon God, we're also dependent upon one another. Where is the kingdom of heaven now? Yes, though it's not fully here yet, it is in an inaugurated way here right now in our midst, in the church. So let us through this prayer learn anew what it means as brothers and sisters to not only depend upon God, but as we depend upon God, to depend upon one another. We're needy creatures. We're a church of helpless and weak people. But amen to that. That's God's grace to bring us to that position. This is the right place for that, and this is where we learn together to find our strength in the bread of heaven, who is Jesus Christ. Let's pray.